1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person of the time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So last year was a horrendous year for bushfires in Australia. now, it wasn't a problem for us, of course, I think because we've been in drought for so long, there was nothing left to burn. Um, but whenever a disaster happens, the human nature is such that rather than just accepting it, uh, we want to know the cause. And more particularly, we want to know who's responsible, who can we blame for this? And so at great expense to our nation, not only are we having an inquiry, we're having a royal commission, no less, to determine the reasons for the severity of the fires and whether anyone's to blame. And we as a nation will spend tens of millions of dollars to get to the bottom of it because we just can't accept that our sunburnt country, as Dorothea McKellar said, is the land that for flood and fire and famine, she pays us back threefold. We want someone to blame. On the 19th of July, in the year 64 AD, fire swept through the city of Rome. It burned for more than a week, and about two-thirds of the city was destroyed. Uh, We don't know how the fire began, but the popular theory was that the Roman Emperor Nero was the one who was responsible for it. 
You see, Nero, he had great ambitions to rebuild Rome to his own design. He didn't like the architecture. He didn't like the design of the city. He just wanted to redo the whole thing. And so when the fire happened, the blame shifted straight away to him. And you've probably heard the saying about how Nero played his fiddle while Rome burned. You've heard that? Well, I can say with all confidence that that's not true. Uh, because the earliest record of a bow-played instrument actually was about 800 years later. But there were witnesses who reported that while Rome burned, Nero got dressed up in his thespian garb, right, clothes for a theatre actor, and that he would quote various poems, and he did strum his lute quite joyously um, as Rome burned. Anyway, regardless of all this, the popular theory was that Nero had ordered his lackeys to light the fire and that any attempts to fight the fire were then hindered under his orders. And these rumours, they just persisted. No matter what he did, he couldn't put a stop to them. So what was Nero to do? Well, he did what any politician does, of course. He tried to shift the blame to somebody else. And so he thought, who are the most hated people in Rome? I know, Christians. We'll blame the Christians. And the Christians were hated. Firstly, they were hated because the Jews were hated and Christianity was seen as being a Jewish sect. Uh, they were also hated because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And they were also hated once again because they were portrayed as being cannibals. After all, they used to have their gatherings, their ceremonies and their feasts where they would eat the body and the blood of this man named Jesus. And so the Christians of Rome were the perfect patsies to take the blame. And I'm not making any of this up. A Roman historian of the time, Tacitus, wrote this. But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the appeasement of, of the gods did not banish the sinister, sinister belief that the inferno was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. How's that, hey? That's, that's actually recorded history by a Roman historian back at that time. And he then went on to describe the hideous torture of Christians that was being inflicted by Nero. Um, he used to like to be inventive. He fastened the skins of wild animals onto Christians and then he'd release his hunting dogs to hunt them down. Many Christians were crucified. And he used Christians as garden lighting. So when the sun went down, he would have Christians coated in tar or pitch, and he'd set them on fire, and he'd let them burn during the night to light his garden. And this same historian, Tacitus, records that Nero's sadistic treatment of the Christians was so great 
that even hardened criminals began to feel compassion for the Christians who were being so treated. So you, you can probably understand that many Christians fled the city of Rome. Not many wanted to stick around to become garden lighting. But their torment wasn't only limited to Rome. The persecution of Christians spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so when the Apostle Peter wrote this letter, which we now know as 1 Peter, he was writing to Christians and to churches who had suffered terribly. And when we know this, wow, doesn't it just make this letter come alive? And when Peter wrote this letter, he himself was actually in Rome. And according to church history, Peter was executed in Rome. Jerome records that he was crucified upside down because he didn't, at his own request, because he didn't feel that he was worthy to die in the same way as Jesus. Right. So this is the Apostle Peter. Uh, his parents named him Simon. Uh, Jesus changed his name to Peter, the rock. So who did he write the letter to? Well, the location of the recipients is in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which basically covers most of, of what we now know as modern-day Turkey. But what's the actual address? Well, it's a strange address. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. That's a strange address, isn't it? Imagine if you um, addressed a letter similar to that and, and took it to Australia Post. How would they find where to deliver it to? Now, when it comes to, it's usually when it comes to starting a new series, but it's other times as well, I have a bit of a bad habit of biting off more than I can chew. So Laura actually rang me on Monday and said, or sent me a text or something on Monday and said, can you give me a bit of heads up? I'm tr trying to plan worship and, and I just want to know what, what the Bible reading is going to be for Sunday and, and what the message is going to be about. And, and I, th at that stage, I hadn't even decided what book I was going to preach on. So uh, I had to get into it quick and, and I looked through and decided, okay, and we prayed about it and, and I inquired of my wife um, and we, I decided on First Peter. Okay, well, just look at it. Okay, that's just the introductions, it's just the address, and then the first couple of paragraphs, we'll, we'll cover that. So I told her, verses 1 to 12, and here's a couple of key things that I see in there, that's what we're going to do. Do you know how, we're going to, how far we're going to get today? Verse 2. Verse 2. I bit off a lot more than what I could chew. Because, wow, Peter sure does know how to address a letter. And the theology... That, that's there in, and that we've got to try and comprehend in those two verses is just amazing. We're dealing with the elect, the exiles, the dispersion, the foreknowledge of God. We've got the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're dealing with sanctification, obedience, and the sprinkled blood of Jesus. What was I thinking saying that we might get 12 verses in? So we'll begin at the beginning. Those who are the elect. In the New Testament, the elect 
are those who are chosen to receive the grace of God, which is a good thing. And yet within the Christian church, there are some who have a great deal of difficulty with the doctrine of election, or it's sometimes called the doctrine of predestination. And I reckon most of that difficulty comes for three reasons. Firstly, it's the difficulty that we have in, in accepting the sovereignty of God. God has supreme authority. What God says goes. And we sometimes have a bit of trouble accepting that. Secondly, the inability to acknowledge the total depravity and the total broken sinfulness of every human being and therefore our need of a saviour. And thirdly, I reckon for some people their difficulty with the doctrine of election is a reaction against some of the more extreme views uh, that take the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination way beyond what the Bible teaches. And they use their own logic and they go, well, therefore, if the Bible says this, then this also must be true. And they add to it and, and make it something which it isn't. But predestination, the biblical teaching that God chooses to save us is wonderful. The Lord our God is Lord. He is ruler. He is master. He is sovereign. Now, we live in a democracy. And so the concept of having a sovereign head of state is quite foreign to us. Even a constitutional monarchy like England do not have a truly sovereign head of state. Queen Elizabeth II is bound by the constitution and she is bound by law. And her real ruling capacity, in some cases, isn't much more than being able to rubber stamp what the parliament decides. But true sovereignty is to have supreme power. It's to have supreme authority, such that what the sovereign head decides goes. It becomes law, and it's the only thing that counts, and there is no higher power to appeal to. And our God is sovereign. He is supreme. He is the supreme power. He is the supreme authority. And yet, he's not a despot. Our God uses his unrivaled and unparalleled authority to choose to show grace and mercy to us that we just don't deserve it. In verse 3, which we just read, but we're not really going to be studying today, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is the doctrine of election or the doctrine of of predestination. Right there. That's wonderful, isn't it? Doesn't it stir your heart to know that before the creation of the world, God knew that he was going to create humans because he's a God of relationship and he wanted a family to love. But God also knew that from that very first generation of humans, we would sin. 
and we would break that relationship and that we would continue to sin through every generation right through until now. God knew this and yet he created us anyway. And that's foreknowledge. God knew. And God decided, God determined that he would send his only son, Jesus, to die for us on the cross so that he could show his great mercy to us, so that he could cause us to be born again to a living hope. And you know when God made that decision? Right before the laying of the foundations of the earth. He had it all sorted out right back then. And God had every right to make that decision because the Lord our God is sovereign. But not all people are saved. Not all people experience the mercy of God. Is that because they choose not to follow God or is it because God didn't choose them? Well, it's actually both. I've told you this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's a good one. One time, our family went to choose a puppy, and we went out to a farm to inspect a litter of puppies. Um, and we, we knew that we wouldn't be choosing any more than one. Do you know how we chose it? As we arrived there and as we walked into the yard where the, where the, where the puppies all were, there was one left the litter and it walked out towards us. And so it sort of chose us, but it didn't. We chose it. You know, we could have just pushed that one aside and said, no, you're not good, we want that one. The puppy had no power to choose. Um, we were the ones who had the authority to determine which pup was going to have the dubious privilege of coming home to the Brumpton yard. They weren't going to come home to the Brumpton house because dogs aren't allowed in their house. That, that's silly. But we were the ones who, who got to choose. And that pup, who we named Jessie, well, she's no longer with us anymore. Uh, she's gotten old and died now. But, but Jessie never questioned my authority to choose. She never said, you are wicked and evil because you only chose one puppy and you left the, the rest behind. And she never wondered, what if those other puppies don't find a good home? She never questioned my authority. How could she? How could she, a mere dog, question my decision? And who are we to question God? Jesus died so that we could all have the opportunity to be saved. But in his mercy, it's more than an opportunity. He, he rounds us up and he calls us and he elects us, come to me to be saved. And then we choose whether we're going to obey him or not. Think about the parable of the servant. Jesus sent out invitations and what happened? They rejected him. They came up with all these excuses. We don't need to, we don't need to come into the, into the banquet. And so the master sends them out. Right, well, invite these ones and these ones and make them come in. And this is what the doctrine of election is. God invites and he brings. And God invites and he brings them again. Right, so that's the elect. 
the exiles. Just as God chose us, just as God elected us to be saved, he also chose that we would suffer. You see, Jesus never promised us a bed of roses, but he did promise us a cross of nails. Didn't Jesus say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And didn't Jesus say that you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved? And didn't Jesus say, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next? Didn't Jesus say all those things? And these Christians that Peter was writing to were living this. They were exiled. Many had to flee their homes as the fury of Nero was unleashed the persecutions, but those persecutions followed them right throughout the empire. But they were exiles in another sense too. There's two words that are held together here. They're exiles of the dispersion, or in the Greek, the, the diaspora. Throughout history, and it's true today, the people of Israel have been largely absent from the promised land. And much of this has, has been because of the hatred of the nations towards the Jews and towards Israel. We can see it in the news today that the nations surrounding Israel have a hatred for Israel. And many of them are very open that their stated aim is to annihilate the nation of Israel. I read in the newspaper, I think it was only yesterday or the day before, that Iran have now built, got the technology, they've got accurate missiles, ballistic missiles that can deliver bombs to Israel. And that's their plan. That's what they want to do. And I don't know about you, but I perceive a fair bit of media bias against Israel in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the media seems to always paint Israel as the baddies. And it seems that they have to constantly bear the bombings, they have to constantly bear the rocket attacks, and, and whenever they retaliate to maintain their security, the media comes down hard on them. And today, anti-Semitism, that's racism against Jews, is rife in our world. And it's always been so. It wasn't only during the Nazi Holocaust. Since the time of Jesus, the Jews have been dispersed across the world and they've generally been despised wherever they've gone. And at the time when Peter wrote this, it's estimated that there might have been about one million Jews living in Palestine, but two to four million had dispersed into other lands surrounding Palestine. Uh, some had dispersed for economic reasons, looking for opportunities to work and to trade. They've always been um, very much involved in trade. And others have dispersed as refugees, fleeing the atrocities and the payback that came down upon them for, for the various times when they tried to regain their independence. 
And the dispersed people of Israel were known as the diaspora. Right? So that's, if you ever hear of the diaspora, that's what they're talking about. The spread of the dispersed people of Israel away from the promised land. And the Jewish diaspora, and this is a good bit, the Jewish diaspora provided the perfect vehicle for the spread of Christianity throughout all of the lands where the Jews had already dispersed to. We can see this unfolding in the book of Acts. Wherever the Jews dispersed, wherever they went, they would build themselves a synagogue and they'd have their own little gatherings. And the Jews themselves were, were great evangelists. Wherever they went, they would try to, to convert the Gentiles to become Jews. And um, there was a, a great deal of Gentiles who just hadn't made the final step, but they were warming to God. And they were going along to the synagogues. And these were known as the God-fearing Gentiles. And as you read the New Testament, every now and then you'll hear about these God-fearing Gentiles. Well, that's who they are. They're ones who had been sort of attached to the Jewish synagogues and were being drawn to God, but they hadn't quite done the final, final act of becoming a Jew. And so when Paul preached the good news of Jesus, do you know where he went first? When he went to a new town, he'd go to a synagogue. And that's where he would first share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles. And so in a sense, many of these new Christians had been part of the diaspora, part of the dispersion because of the Jewish heritage that brought Christianity to their land. But now, because of the persecution of Christians in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, the Christians themselves were becoming just like the people of Israel, a people who had to disperse. And different versions of the Bible translate this differently. Uh, the English Standard Version calls them exiles. The New International Version calls them strangers. Perhaps the best translation, but they don't really use it in the Bibles anymore because it's an old word that has fallen from our language, is the word sojourners. Because the Greek word that, that's getting used here, it's not about being forced into exile. It's more like being an expat, if you like, a resident foreigner, someone who lives for a short while in a foreign place as a stranger or an alien. And in this regard, he's not talking about their physical address. He's not talking about a physical citizenship. He's talking in a spiritual sense. As disciples of Jesus, we are sojourners in the world. Right? This is our current place of residence, but it's not our home. My address is St George, a little town in southern Queensland. We like to call it South West Queensland. We're not west at all. I don't think we're even halfway across. <laughs> but we're a little town in southwest Queensland. But that's not my home. And it's not your home. 
just like Abraham in the Old Testament. He was on a pilgrimage. He was a sojourner on the way to the promised land. We are on a pilgrimage. We are sojourners through this life to our promised land, to be with Christ in glory. And we're going to hear more about that in, in a couple of weeks when we get to verse 4, when we will hear about what Peter calls, he says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our home. We're sojourners on the way to that. And so in this life, we're sojourners, we're strangers, we're exiles, we're passing through on our way to the promised end. So we'll move on. The foreknowledge of God. What does God foreknow? What does God know is going to happen before it happens? Well, everything, of course. It's not a trick question. It's, it's everything. There are no surprises for God. Um, never bet against God. God knows everything that's going to happen. And in this letter, we're going to hear Peter encouraging these churches who have been scattered and encouraging Christians who have been suffering the most horrendous persecutions. Can you imagine the, the feelings that some of these might have been feeling? Um, God, don't you know what's happening to us? Do you not even care? Of course God knows. Because God knows everything. And when you encounter the most terrible circumstances of your life, of course God knows about it. He even knew that it would happen before it did. Our Heavenly Father knows. And what a comfort that is to know that our Heavenly Father knows. And God not only knew that we would be saved, he didn't only choose us to be saved, he also knew that because we were saved, the world would hate us. And so let's not be surprised that the world hates us because of the faith that we have in Jesus. Right, so it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification, these big theological terms keep coming, don't they? Now, whenever, usually when I use the word sanctification, I usually explain it as God changing us. God is perfecting us. God is making us more and more like Jesus. And it's not something that happens all at once immediately. It's something that happens throughout our life. God is continually sanctifying us, growing the fruit of the Spirit in us. But in this reading today, Peter's using that word in a different way. He's using it more in the way that the items for the temple had to be sanctified to make them holy, right? It, it was to do with their initial setting aside for God. 
You see, the temple was a holy place. It was where God resided. And if something was going to be brought into the presence of God, it had to be sanctified. It had to be made holy. It had to be cleaned of everything that isn't holy. And it's the same for us. Before we are sanctified by the blood of Jesus, we were sinners. We were unholy. And for us to come into the presence of God, we have to become holy. We have to be sanctified. And just like things were sanctified for the temple by the blood of bulls and whatnot, the only way for us to be sanctified is to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And that's why Peter mentioned the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Jesus is the sacrifice. It's only through Jesus that we are sanctified and made holy to enter into the presence of God. But this isn't a physical cleanliness. It's a spiritual cleanliness. When I was a student at, at Ag College, for a couple of weeks of the year, we had to work in the piggery. Now, I found that in those two weeks, no matter how much I scrubbed my hands, I could not get the smell of the piggery off of my hands. And um, in the dining room, there's a special table set aside for the students that were on pigs. Uh, right over off to the side, that's where the students who were on pigs had to sit. And there's a great big poster of a pig there. And um, obviously because we stank. And no matter how much you scrubbed, you just couldn't get the, 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 the smell off you. And so I was thinking about this. If it depended on physical cleanliness, nobody who ever worked in a piggery could ever become a Christian. Because no matter how much you scrub, you just can't get the smell off you. And even if you think you do smell all right, somebody else will set you straight. No, you haven't got the smell off you. See, it's not a physical cleanliness. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And here, in the address of this letter of all things, we find the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, according to the knowledge of the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And in this letter, we're going to learn what we are saved for. What are we saved for? Obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, some people have the idea that, that salvation, you know, and they treat salvation as, as if God has saved them from their sins, but that doesn't have any firmer, further ramifications for their attitude or for the way that they relate to others or in their expression of everyday life. God has chosen us. God has sanctified us for obedience to Jesus Christ. And as we read this letter over the next few months, we're going to discover what obedience to Jesus Christ means. Obedience to Jesus Christ means holding firm to our faith no matter what, 
continuing to be loyal to Jesus, even if somebody wants to use us for their garden lighting. Obedience to Jesus affects the way that we relate to God. It affects the way that we relate to other Christians. And it affects the way that we relate to the world, even when the world hates us. See, we haven't been saved to go on sinning. We haven't been saved to only follow Jesus until things start getting a little bit too tough. We have been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so Peter's opening greeting is, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And my prayer is that as we study this letter, the grace and the peace of God would be multiplied to us. It's only a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were still in Philippians, and in Philippians chapter 4, Paul told us about how to attain peace. He, he said to think about these things that are true and honourable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and the things that are worthy of praise and, and to practice godliness. And he says, and the God of peace will be with you. And I believe that as we study this letter of 1 Peter, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be dwelling on these things and remembering these things. We're going to be reminded of the beauty, of the grace and the mercy of God that he has given to us and we've received. And, and as we dwell on these things, grace and peace will be multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing two verses we read today, all in the address of a letter that was written to a scattered and dispersed people almost 2,000 years ago. And yet, what a wonderful encouragement it is for us today. Lord, we just want to burst into thanksgiving and praise that, that you would elect us, that you would choose us to be your children and that you would choose to sanctify us by the blood of Jesus and that you would wash away all of our sin so that we can become holy and fit to be in your presence. Oh, Lord, thank you. And Father, when persecutions arise and when the world hate us because of our allegiance to Jesus, Lord, give us courage, knowing that before time began, you knew. You knew not only that you would choose to save us, but you knew that the world would hate us because you chose us. You know when the world would ridicule us because of our convictions and because of our obedience to live counter to the culture of the world, you know. When the world singles Christians out to accuse us of all sorts of things, you know. When the governments legislate to make obedience to you unlawful, Lord, you know. And Lord, we pray that as we study this letter of 1 Peter over these next few months, that we would become increasingly aware of your grace 
and your peace and that these things would be multiplied to us. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.